The thing is, Max, that this crisis has revealed every fault line in our system. This is Max Rameau, strategist, theorist, author, and organizer with Pan-African Community Action. And you are listening to The Next World, a podcast about building movements. Once a month on this show, we will explore and celebrate the work of poor people's movements, particularly in the U.S. We will highlight innovative and powerful organizing, campaigns, and community building led by women, LGBTQ folks, black communities, and other people of color that are pushing the boundaries and have the potential to transform this society. Today on the show, we're going to take a deep breath and a step back in order to put some context into the policy structures and demands we should be thinking about during this coronavirus crisis. We are being joined by Kathy Albiza and Ben Palmquist, the Executive Director and Healthcare Program Director, respectively, of Partners for Dignity and Rights. Some of you may know Partners for Dignity and Rights by their previous moniker, NESRI, or the National Economic and Social Rights Initiative. Partners for Dignity and Rights is also the sponsoring organization for this show. Partners has been working on a set of public policy issues for years, and those same set of issues are the most important issues we are facing today with the coronavirus crisis, including universal health care, housing, dignity in schools, and workers' rights. We'll find out what the partners are doing during these trying times to help us orient ourselves in the midst of this crisis. But before we get started, I have a quick request. If you like this show, please subscribe, tell your friends, post about us on social media, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about our show at DignityAndRights.org, which is the website of Partners for Dignity and Rights. It's time to introduce our guests, Kathy Albiza and Ben Palmquist. Kathy and Ben, welcome to the show. Kathy and Ben, can you tell us a little bit about Partners for Dignity and Rights, of course, formerly known as NESRI? But what is partners and what do you do? And what is your, what do you believe? What are your, what are your values? What do you basically, are you, uh, are you advocating? Thanks, Max. Partners for Dignity and Rights believes in community-driven solutions that are equitable and universal, essentially. Uh, we work with community organizations across the country that advance solutions that are structural in nature, that, that are high bar, that create long-term change. Um, and that are designed around human rights values, centering people and their needs. Uh, ben, maybe you'd wanna add a few words as well. The big picture vision that drives us and unites us with our partners, and I think really with most people out there is a recognition that all human lives have value and that we're all living in this country and on this planet together. Um, and, but to protect the sort of everybody's life, it, we need to make sure everyone's basic needs are met. So that means guaranteeing that everybody has housing and education, food, water, healthcare, the other essential pieces of life together. Um, and so, you know, we, the, those can't just be given to us on high, but that because we live in a world where those things are denied to people right now, we need to work together to challenge power and injustices and and build uh, the new solutions and build the world that we want together. So that's really big picture. And of course, it's difficult to argue against uh, centering human rights and centering human dignity. Uh, so what does that look like in practice? What's the role that Partners for Dignity and Rights plays in the broader social justice movement? 
what is it exactly that you do in a day-to-day -day basis or really on the ground? Well, Max, our new name starts with partners because that is exactly what we do. We believe, we have a vision, but we believe that the community has to have the agenda and we're there to support it. Uh, and what we do is develop these very deep strategic partnerships to find new models that actually help achieve these human rights. For example, if we know that people are consistently displaced from their housing, and that evictions are the norm, and that most, that a huge number of people are in housing they can barely afford, then we need a new model. So we've been working with communities around the country to advance public financing for community land trusts, where uh, homes are owned by individuals and family, but the land underneath is owned by a community organization to ensure that the costs never go up. It's not speculative. That's just one example. If we know kids are being consistently pushed out of schools, we support a coalition and partners uh, to decriminalize schools because the pushing out has been through targeted criminalizations of black and brown students and put in alternatives like restorative justice that realigns relationships. If we know our healthcare system is leaving so many people out that it's killing tens of thousands a year, we work with people in states and around the country and nationally to push for universal publicly financed healthcare that is democratic and inclusive. Uh, and similarly, we work with low wage workers so that workers have control and agency over their workplace, including how their own rights are being protected. Uh, looking to support models like worker driven social responsibility where workers actually create their own programs through legally binding agreements to change the nature of their workplace. These are the kinds of things we do in concrete terms to create long-term structural change. I think one of the things that makes this, this uh, particular episode so relevant is this seems a little bit like a setup here. So we have, uh, we're right now all going through, the only thing on the news really is the coronavirus uh, news and we're all going through some level of uh, isolation or not going to work, or some people are going to work even more frequently than they went to work before. I have a, so, so several friends who work at grocery stores who have been told there's no such thing as overtime right now. You can work as many hours as you want, uh, as you can as you can stand up, stand on two feet. And the things we've really been hearing about during this crisis, when I asked you, Kathy, about what it is that Partners for Dignity and Rights works on, you identified uh, basically housing, schools, healthcare, and workers' rights. And during this crisis, we've been hearing a lot about, do people have access to housing? And is that housing going to be safe for this crisis? All these young people are out of their traditional schools, and now they're in these uh, untraditional at-home uh, school settings. A lot of them are anyway. Are we going to have access to tests and healthcare if we uh, are exposed to the coronavirus? And what are the rights of workers, those who are deemed non-essential and still need some income and some insurance, and those who are deemed essential, who are now putting in all these hours and sometimes getting paid minimum wage for work that is being called of a national interest. So given the fact that this is the stuff that you're working on generally during you know, normal times, if we can call it that, then how does this work translate into this time of really unprecedented national and global crisis? The thing is, Max, that this crisis has revealed every fault line in our system. Every weakness, every inequity is going to be intensified and is being intensified. 
while people are sequestering in their homes, low-wage workers are inches from each other, packed into warehouses, packing soap and, and other essential supplies, with some with no safety equipment whatsoever, using a biometric uh, system to identify them where they each have to put their finger in exactly the same place, uh, where everyone's being told to shelter in place. Homeless People who are homeless in New York are being thrown out of some shelters during the day and told to come back at night. How do you shelter in place when you don't have a place to shelter? And where the six foot uh, distancing that protects people has not even been considered because it's almost structurally impossible. Every fault line, the fact that our kids in, in, in lower income schools don't have access to, to computers, you know, has like had the schools rushing to send computers home. You know, but where, what are they doing the rest of the year? How <laughs> are these kids doing their homework the rest of the year? The point is every fault line is being surfaced and exposed, every crack. And then for the moment, we have to jump into emergency response and protect our communities, make sure that kids that are already falling through the system of education don't fall further behind make sure that workers who already don't have health and safety protections aren't further endangered. Not to mention you're saying paid minimum wage, but two thirds of workers get their wages stolen every week. Let's assume they're at least paid minimum wage. We can't even guarantee that. Um, and in right now it's only going to intensify. So we have to be incredibly vigilant in the short term and we have to be very clear that it is because of our long-term missteps and abuses that we're in such a difficult moment today and cannot get our hands around this crisis. Ben, you might have a lot to add around the healthcare and, and, and democracy in general, because I know you work on those two issues deeply. Yeah, as Kathy's saying, this is really just sort of exposing um, inequities that already existed throughout our, our social and economic systems and society. And in healthcare, you know, it's exposing a lot of the fault lines that um, we've been trying to draw attention to, as so many have over time. And so we still have around 30 million people who are completely uninsured in this country. But even many people on insurance don't have um, coverage of the doctors they need to see, the treatments they need, the medicines they need. And so there's, you know, estimates run up to some 70 to 80 million people who um, can't get basic care because they have. Um, limits on coverage or high deductibles that can't afford. So suddenly we're in this crisis and it helps clarify that actually healthcare is not just an individual matter, that we are all better off when everybody else needs care, but the, our existing systems are not set up for that. Our hospitals are under capacity, our healthcare workers are stressed. Um, so in the immediate, there's um, one of the things that we're helping folks look at is what can we do to protect healthcare workers right now um, in terms of having masks and protective equipment and that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, how can we, at the same time as we're sort of preparing for what will likely be a hard few months ahead of us, especially in the hospital system, um, make sure that we're meeting medical needs and also protecting people's economic needs at the same time. And so there's so many people now are at home and in a way that is important for public health, but has completely cut off people's livelihoods. So it's exposing a lot of the 
um, precarity that that this employment system has produced. And unfortunately, it's not just a matter of income, but so many people's um, ability to meet basic needs, like like have a roof over their heads, have mm-hmm. insurance coverage, are tied to jobs. And so now predictions are running. It's looking like we may soon have unemployment of 20 to 30%, which is massive. And a lot of those people are going to be losing not just income, but a lot of these other protections as well. Yeah. So before we do a little bit of a drill down into some of the specific policy areas, uh, I do want to ask, Do you, given the, the fact that you are working on these issues that are so deeply tied to the crisis response, uh, you've been working on those for, for years now, uh, do you see the crisis response, as you're approaching the crisis response, are you rethinking your entire approach or are you just uh, amping up your existing approach, uh, because those are the areas that people are talking about anyhow. Actually, Max, in addition to the campaigns that I mentioned that we are supporting on the ground, we have already been shifting some of our work in the last few years because of the deep political polarization we've been experiencing in the country and the deepening economic insecurity. And we've been calling for a sort of larger scale set of integrated solutions. We call it our new social contract project which looks at all these community-driven solutions and what they add up to in terms of an alternative for where our country is right now. And those calls include things like a federal jobs guarantee, which would have hedged against the 30% unemployment that they're predicting in in the second quarter. Basic income, but done equitably, which would have ensured that people could meet their needs and that the emergency infusion doesn't go disproportionately to those who already have too much which would have moved a lot of housing into the non-speculative market so that housing instability wouldn't get worse in a moment of crisis, Um, and which would have put in place democratic, inclusive, universal health care, which wouldn't leave people undecided about whether to go to the hospital in the middle of a pandemic or whether to get tested when they need to know whether they could infect their neighbors. All these things are a necessary response to the changes in the 21st century And we have been lagging in making these larger structural changes. This won't be our last pandemic, unfortunately, and it won't be our last challenge. We are poorly structured at this moment to meet them, but but that can change. Our communities have the ideas. Our country has the capacity. We just need to pivot and create the political will. All right. Well, let's drill down a little bit on a couple of these. What We're right now in the very beginnings, very early stages of a pandemic, and people are beginning to worry about what to do. What are some of the immediate responses that Partners for Dignity and Rights and and your partner, your partner organizations, are engaged in in relation to healthcare, for example? What are the things you're doing right now or advocating for right now that is going to have some impact on on the way we're experiencing this, uh, this crisis, this pandemic? Yeah, so everybody is trying to figure out a lot of things at once. A really important strategy we're supporting our partners with is just reorganizing their sort of operationally how they're working to make sure that they can um, be in communication and moving forward together and also set up mutual aid strategies so that they're able to support their members and family members and communities and make sure that um, people are able to get through the coming weeks. In addition, another thing we're helping them figure out are what what are a set of demands 
um, both long, shorter term and longer term demands that um, really, you know, we can't just do as communities on our own, but we need the support of state and the federal government to do. And I'd say generally those fall into a couple categories. There's, you know, medical needs and health needs, and then there's economic needs. And so these are things like, you know, making sure that testing uh, for COVID-19 is freely and widely available, making sure that healthcare workers, including not just doctors and nurses, but um, home health aides and workers in nursing homes have protect, uh, personal protective equipment to keep them and keep the people they're caring for safe. And then there's also a set of demands that people are putting out around um, basic economic needs that people have in a very immediate sense. So how are people um, you know, gonna have water to wash their hands if their water is being cut off by the authorities? Um, how are people gonna have enough food? Um, and so making sure that uh, food is, is available to people wherever they live. How are people gonna be able to stay in their homes if they can't pay their rent or mortgage um, as they're losing work? And so making sure that there's um, moratoriums on evictions and on debt collection and that kind of thing. So it's, it, there's really, you know, I think this will be evolving, but one of the most important things we can all do in this moment is listen to folks who are directly and most impacted by these problems because they know very well exactly what the immediate challenges are. And so I think we can all take a lot of leadership by folks who are on the front lines, um, whether it's in the healthcare system or on the front lines of the economic crisis. And are there any organizations that are now working on some of these? Like, like what are people doing in order to make testing widely available? The federal government is having a lot of problems with this issue right now. What are local community groups doing? What are local community groups doing around keeping the water on and having some sort of um, a rent or eviction abatement program going? Well, there, there's two levels, I think, at which people are working, Max. So there's, there's the larger level, uh, in terms of aggregating our voices to build a bigger demand. So obviously all our partners, as all our movements are, pushing for things like covering everyone right now, at least with Medicaid, giving people access to healthcare right now, uh, and pushing for you know, production of more test kits. This, is, this can only be resolved at the federal level, so we must aggregate our voices. But our partners are also playing a very important, invaluable role that I think Ben flagged, where he said to listen to people who are marginalized because they have experiences that are not making it into the larger debate. So for example, our partner Chicago Workers Collaborative in Chicago is working with temp workers, their constituents, to push back on this biometric testing. Why would you have hundreds of workers touching the exact same spot with their finger in the middle of a pandemic. That, that, is, uh, th that is just so stupid, frankly, that you can't even wrap your head around why we have to advocate for the safety of these workers in this way. And why don't they have safety kits? And why are they so close together? Because they're considered dispensable and they have been always. And now this is really coming to the surface. Why is it in agriculture? that our partners have to push for deep cleaning buses and letting workers have hotel rooms if they're migrating from place to place doing work if they get sick. And where you have community wins and infrastructure in place, you're actually better able to resolve those problems and push back against that kind of 
widespread stupidity by treating people as if they were dispensable. Similarly, our ally partner organization here in New York City, Picture the Homeless, is surveying uh, homeless constituents to find out what they're experiencing and how they're put at risk and how they're being forced to put other people at risk. So that is another thing a lot of our, almost every one of our partners is doing, which is surveying their constituents to identify those problems and create a rapid response solution to them, whether it's a healthcare, housing, or interrelated problem. Right now, all the problems are interrelated. You know, we have people calling us saying, how do we figure out how to get unemployment insurance to workers who aren't formally entitled to it, even though they're not going to have any income and they have been working? And these are things our partners are working on behind the scenes as well as openly advocating for changes to existing policies to address the crisis. You know, construction is still happening in places like Minnesota, but they're being laid off nonetheless um, because it's slowing down. Uh, and they're not, many of the workers are not currently, because they're misclassified as independent contractors, eligible for unemployment insurance. Yeah. So there are multiple, multiple problems that are being heaped upon people who have been pushed to the margins. And it is this sort of community organizing infrastructure that is responding to them and pushing back in real time, day after day. Well, so those are some of the immediate things that we can do, or some of the immediate things that some folks are doing right now, pushing for the wide availability of testing, certainly for the worker protection so that they're not, uh, workers are not getting infected and then workers are not spreading the infection to other workers and also to consumers. What are the longer term issues or what are the longer term policy bottom lines that we need to be thinking about in terms of health care? What are the longer term policy bottom lines? Let's think about the three buckets of failures here, right? The three buckets of failures are the, the lack of public infrastructure, public goods and services, right? So failure to build the public. The second is the failure to bring an equity lens to all our systems. So despite the fact that we're deeply interconnected and until everyone is safe from the infection, no one is, some people are far more protected than others in every single way. So the failure of equity in the way our policies play out. And then the failure to create economic policy that meets needs rather than fuels profit. Those three failures are really being seen in sharp relief right now. So the long-term responsive have to address those three failures. We need to build the public. We need to keep that push going for universal health care, but also universal basic income that's actually equitable, um, a federal jobs guarantee that protects against unemployment, universal child care in a moment like this where parents have their kids at, at home, it would be compl complicated to implement, but the need is very clear. Um, We'd have to push for, frankly, a reinvestment of our resources to deconcentrate wealth. It's something we've been talking about for years, certainly, certainly since 2008 in the meltdown, and we've taken no serious step towards that end. And we have not brought a race lens to it as well. When you look at the racial wealth gap, it is astonishing. And black and brown communities right now as a result are devastatingly vulnerable. No savings, no wealth, nothing to fall back on. And the third is just basic economic and social rights, meeting human needs. No one should face a crisis in a country of this level of wealth and resources 
and fear, deeply and validly fear, that in a matter of weeks or months, they cannot even meet their basic needs. I was walking down the street of my own neighborhood to go to the market, and I saw four women, one standing in the middle with about a 10-year-old child, sobbing. And when I walked by, what I could overhear is that she didn't know how she was going to pay her bills this month or she got laid off. That is unnecessary, cruel, and inhuman. And we can create different systems going forward so that it never happens to anyone in our country again. Well, in terms of the, the biggest public infrastructure that we think of when we talk about health care, it will be universal health care, uh, where everyone has uh, full access to, uh, to, to health care without having some sort of copay or insurance or anything like that. So if that is the biggest thing, and let's say that we're able to achieve that, uh, of course, critics are not saying that uh, even if that were in place, universal health care, there would still be an epidemic. So if universal health care would not prevent the epidemic, then what is the broader benefit of bringing in universal health care uh, if it wouldn't prevent something like this in the first place? Yeah, I think there's, um, it's definitely true that we need to invest in all sort of parts of our public healthcare infrastructure. So that includes not just uh, sort of the insurance system and hospitals, but also public health. Um, and that is public health has been something that has been scaled back that, you know, the federal government has been cutting um, research and uh, disaster preparedness and all these sorts of things. So that that's absolutely essential, but these really dovetail with each other. So hmm. Medicare for all um, would actually do a number of things. The most obvious is that it would guarantee care to everybody, period, um, including everyone in the country, regardless of documentation or anything else. Um, and, you know, it, it would remove, as you said, co-pays and all these other cost barriers that pe keep people from, from getting care. Um, but it would also do things like it would fund hospitals equitably across the whole country so that in every part of the country, there would be needs assessments to determine what do, what are the medical needs of this community? And then it would steer the financing for hospitals uh, to the areas where there's the greatest need. That's a real contrast to how things work right now, where basically the um, big hospital companies or increasingly private equity companies that own hospitals are just making dollars and cents calculations to determine where they can make the most money. But what and, would the on the ground difference be if there was the exact same crisis and the response that we're seeing right now from the federal government in particular, but even from, from some states and, and municipalities uh, with this existing system, what would the difference be if right now today there was universal health care, if there was some public infrastructure around a national health care system? If the Jayapal bill had been passed, as Ben just flagged, hospital infrastructure would have been invested in, in rural areas that have been decimated. This virus, this pandemic is going to hit everywhere. When it starts hitting places without hospitals, without hospital beds to send people, it is going to be devastating. Try to imagine living in a town where a significant number of people are sick, desperately sick, and there is no hospital nearby or very few beds. If you're in the middle of Pennsylvania, you need to go to Pittsburgh or to Philly for serious emergency care. In the midst of a pandemic, that is terrifying. 
So universal health care is, is, is coverage, but it's more than coverage. It's also care. It's building the public health infrastructure that we need. And no, Max, you're right. None of that would always prevent an epidemic or a pandemic because you can't always prevent an epidemic or a pandemic. But how you manage it and how your people suffer or don't suffer or how you're able to protect your people does dramatically differ if everyone is housed, if the healthcare system is invested in, if you have public, you know, it, departments that like like disaster readiness deeply invested in so that we can protect ourselves if everyone has a basic income and isn't going out to do things that are unsafe because they have no other way to get by all those things of course would make a dramatic difference in a time of crisis just to indicate how severe the hospital closure crisis has been in the last 10 years over 100 hospitals have shut their doors and there's over 400 that remain at risk today of closing. And so these are hospital companies that are threatening bankruptcy and closure. And the reason this is the case is because of the way we finance our healthcare system, that it's just based on where there's profits to be made rather than based on where there are human health needs and then steering money towards where it's needed. So to give an example of what people are doing, our partners at Put People First Pennsylvania last week came out with a set of demands, and those demands include creating an immediate moratorium on further hospital closures and then reopening hospitals that have recently been closed and are sitting mothballed in the cities of Lancaster and Philadelphia. Uh, we're, we are immediately going to be needing extra hospital capacity. And so it's just crazy that we're letting hospitals close like this just because the private equity firms or hospital companies have decided it's not profitable enough for them. You know, here in Washington, D.C., where I live, there have been two hospital closures in the past few years. Providence Hospital closed within the past year, and the D.C. General Hospital has closed also. And while these closings are happening, the local governments are trying to figure out how to put up a temporary hospital with a bunch of beds in order to accommodate the, uh, the number of people which they expect to need assistance. Uh, meanwhile, there's, there's uh, two empty hospitals, one of them being converted into some multi-use facility. So that certainly is, uh, is an infrastructure problem that wouldn't exist if we would have some kind of a coherent healthcare system here. So let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about housing. So, of course, partners have been working on uh, housing, mainly in the form of community land trusts to keep housing costs down. But now, in the context of the coronavirus, there's this renewed push to get housing for people, particularly for people who are experiencing homelessness. So first, can we explain why there's a need to get housing? This is an emergency rush. Uh, the, the state of California has rented 900 hotel rooms in order to house otherwise homeless people. Why is there this big rush now? Why does the coronavirus lead to a need to provide emergency housing and full housing for people? Uh, and then what are the short-term things we can do or should be thinking about uh, as it relates to the uh, to the coronavirus crisis that we should be thinking about and doing in terms of housing? Well, just to be clear, the, the need precedes the, the virus. It, again, it's one of those fault lines that gets pushed out in such stark relief in a moment of crisis. I think most people who would be listening to a show like this would agree that for some, <laughs> for some reason the, the, there has been very little 
almost no response from the government to the growing housing crisis, particularly in California in the Bay Area. And suddenly now, within a matter of weeks, not a matter of months, not a matter of years, and not in response to huge protests and huge social mobilization, but within a matter of weeks, the state of California and the Bay Area, the cities of San Francisco and uh, San Jose and, and Oakland have gotten together and gotten hotel rooms for, uh, for the homeless populations there. So okay. there, we understand that, but there's that, suddenly a sense of urgency, which we simply have not seen around anything before. So, right. And I think there are, there are two things to, to reflect. One is that it demonstrates what most of us working on these issues know, we have the capacity. If we can do this in a matter of weeks, imagine what we could have done with a serious commitment in just a few years. There is literally no reason anyone should be homeless in this country. So let's start there. We know that there are more homeless, there are more empty homes than homeless people. We've counted them over and over again. The second is speculating as to the reason why. The most positive interpretation of events is for purposes of public health. But the reality is that keeping people housed is always going to be a big plus for public health. So housing should be achievable for everyone, both because we can, and it's a human right, because it's always better for public health. And I think in this instance, people are, the government and the powers that be are also deeply concerned about getting a hold of this because of the economic impacts. So I think it's some combination of public health and economic impacts that have created the sense of urgency. But my hope is that now that we've demonstrated how possible it is, we can hold on to that momentum, at least some of it. It won't be easy. People's memories are short. But there needs to be an effective push to make clear that if we can do this in a moment of crisis, we can do this for the long haul. Well, in the context of the crisis, right before the crisis, there was some really exciting social justice news coming out of the Bay Area where a group calling itself Moms for Housing took over a vacant home in Oakland and uh, moved in several mothers who were struggling to, to find housing in the Bay Area. Uh, and they took over the house and they stayed there for a number of weeks, got a lot of attention for it, and eventually were evicted out by the SWAT team, uh, of course. Since then, several cities in California have announced that it's not going to use this police force at this time to evict people. And I think probably on that news in Los Angeles right now, since this, of course, that Moms for Housing took place before the coronavirus started. Since that has started, there's another group out of Los Angeles calling itself Reclaiming Our Homes uh, that took over a number of vacant houses. The last report was 12 vacant houses in the Los Angeles area, and they are doing the same thing. They're providing housing for people who otherwise don't have it. Is this an emergency response to the crisis? What what role does this have to do in terms of short term, uh, or is this really a bad use of, of, of energy and time at this point? I think what this does is it demonstrates that the feasibility of housing everyone, and it makes a demand upon the state to do so, despite existing laws that favor eviction, displacement, and homelessness. Is it a solution at scale? No. We cannot, group by group, move everyone into an empty home that we need to. That is something we need public responsibility for. But does it demonstrate and create pressure towards that outcome? I believe it does. 
I believe it does. I believe it demonstrates, one, it just further clarifies how much empty housing stock we have. It shows that people are willing and able to claim it and make it into you know, stable homes. And it just pushes out the sort of hypocrisy and contradiction of the state, especially in a moment like this, where housing and public health go hand in hand. Yeah, housing and public health go hand in hand. That, I think that really encapsulates the importance of the urgency of this moment, even though this housing crisis has long preceded, as you mentioned, the crisis of homelessness. So then in the longer term, or kind of like the big picture, then how does the work of community land trusts uh, fit into this whole thing? How does the work of community land trusts advance the broader public safety agenda? Well, it's... It's not just recent that people have been taking over homes, as you know, Max. Especially since the crisis, there has been a strong movement demonstrating that people deserve homes that are just sitting there empty and that they should be turned into community land trusts and serve community needs. What I think we can do with crisis after crisis is achieve a tipping point where we shift enough power towards not just taking over empty homes, but financing, turning over these homes. you getting public financing. It should be a government responsibility to rehab these homes, give them to people who need them, and turn them into sustainable communities. A community land trust model has proven to be incredibly resilient. Let's think about the fact that during the housing crisis, it had the lowest, the lowest uh, foreclosure rate of any housing owned by families or individuals. Let's think about the fact that lower income families tend to stay in a community land trust home far longer than in a home in a private market, even with subsidies. And let's think about the fact that when you put a community land trust together, you're not just giving people homes, you're actually having them govern those homes as a group. And that sort of local democracy and community governance also creates the kind of civic infrastructure that makes us stronger to respond to any crisis like this one. Hmm, Interesting, okay. Uh, A number of cities since the coronavirus uh, crisis hit the shores of the United States, a number of cities have announced that they are not gonna use their police force to execute evictions. So people in the social justice movement uh, certainly have been for a long time saying uh, housing is a human right and people shouldn't be evicted from their homes because they don't have enough money. And now suddenly there are a couple of things happening. One is people are not gonna get uh, evicted, at least in some places. And there's a number of cities that are looking at putting a halt to mortgage payments or rent payments uh, during the, at least during the time of crisis. Do you support this type of mercy action that is happening on a public scale, on a, uh, uh, on a big scale and as a government response? Uh, and if you do, do you see any limitations to it or any potential problems uh, there? We, uh, we support the action. Any moratorium on eviction and displacement, we absolutely support. Um, the concern would be what happens once it's over? right? Does this debt accumulate or are they going to create debt forgiveness? Are they going to provide people with economic relief so that they're not in a hole three or four months from now or even longer? Who knows how long this crisis will go? What, what, what we would be concerned about is the short-term nature of our thinking sometimes. 
this should be taken as an opportunity to shift to a different standard. There are places around the world where you actually cannot evict someone unless they have another acceptable alternative, for example. Um, It is inconceivable that we should be evicting people at any point into the streets. You know, one out of 10 kids in New York City lives in a homeless shelter. Is that the kind of school system we want to run? What's going to happen in three months? That's my question. What's going to happen in six months? Rather than seeing this as a mercy, why don't we see this as an opportunity for some structural shifts so that the crisis of ongoing displacement begins to be halted and reversed? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a legitimate question. If there is some kind of mortgage uh, moratorium or rent moratorium that, let's say, goes on for six months and it happens, let's say I lose my job because of the coronavirus, social isolation or or social distancing, as they're calling it, a lot of businesses are, are closing down, so I lose my job and I don't work for six months. What happens at the end of the six months? Do I have to then make double payments to make up for the previous six months? Or is that debt forgiveness? If I have to make double payments and I've just been out of work, for I could actually be in a worse position at this, the end of this thing than I was before it started. This is what I am failing to hear from our leaders. What are the long-term commitments? You know, if they're going to send everybody 1000 or $1,500, that's not going to solve three or four months of no income. And if it's not a debt relief, if it's just a temporary moratorium, you're right. They're going to allow people to be in situations worse than they are when they started. And that's unacceptable. Our inability to handle a crisis because we have not invested in the public, because we have not been equitable, because we have not centered people's needs, is an unacceptable reason for the most vulnerable in our population, most vulnerable in our neighborhoods, to be in a far worse position in four or five months than they are now while we're bailing out banks and propping up uh, other economic sectors. Yeah, I just want to add a couple points. One is that um, this is really an area where the federal government has to step in. States and cities and counties have limited budgets, but the federal government, because it controls our currency, the dollar literally has the ability to print more money. And there's limits in terms of inflation under normal circumstances about to what extent they can do that. Um, But this is a case where money is just dropping out of the economy and there's an immediate need for the federal government to step up to directly um, be putting cash in people's hands to meet their basic expenses. The other thing I want to say is that I'm hoping that this moment opens up an opportunity where we can challenge some of the assumptions that, you know, supporting people who are experiencing homelessness or Uh, eviction is about helping those people over there. I I think what this crisis really illustrates is how we're all in this together. And if people in my community are um, at risk of losing the roofs over their heads, that's, I'm not uh, doing well in that situation either. And so I really, and this is what I think a lot of these direct actions that people are taking are helping illustrate as well, that like, we really need to come together in solidarity and support one another because our, you know, we're all in this together. And if somebody else is suffering, that doesn't help me. Uh, okay, so just in, these, in, in, the, in the past, in what we just discussed, Ben and Kathy, you both talked a bit about the, uh, the big, biggest thing I think that's been in the news in terms of the government response recently is the possibility that the federal government could send millions of people a check for $1,000 or for $1,500 or whatever they end up sending it for if they end up sending it, uh, uh, 
which of course speaks to workers' rights. So you have workers now who are losing their jobs. You have other workers who are spending way more time at the job. And some of those workers who are spending more time at the job are doing so in what seems to me like unsafe conditions. Uh, the close proximity, the long hours, which of course just saying one of the things that helps you the most with the uh, coronavirus is getting lots of sleep. So let's shift our attention a little bit to workers' rights now. What should we be doing in the short term in response to the crisis now for workers' rights on behalf of workers' rights? What are the uh, interest, what are the uh, things we should be doing in the short term? And what are some of the things that your partners are looking at and demanding there? And there's, there's at least two big categories to look at. And one is obviously for the workers who are on the front line producing in the factories, in the warehouse, in the food systems. It's taking health and safety to a new level. And that not only requires actually beginning to, to do the inspections that are not happening or empowering workers to create their own health and safety committees, but finding ways to ramp up protection against retaliation. Otherwise, workers won't be able to try to protect themselves. Right now, retaliation is rampant, absolutely rampant in low-wage industries. So even getting information, having workers being able to speak up is a challenge. Uh, I don't think we can fix that overnight, but there should be an immediate push on all fronts to protect the workers that are working 60, 70 hours a week to keep us um, safe through this crisis, to keep us fed through this crisis. The second is for all the workers who don't have income. $1,000 is nothing. It, they're not really giving us $1,000 so that people can get by. They're giving people $1,000 so they spend it and jumpstart the economy. That's not a worker's rights response. Uh, we need to look at, is our unemployment safety net broad enough and deep enough and long enough for the recession to come? You know, do we need to be giving higher levels of unemployment? Do those state funds need to be funded by the federal level? Do we need to be including workers that haven't been included? What about the gig workers? What about all the misclassified independent contractors? Again, this is a moment of crisis. Is our unemployment safety net big enough? broad enough and long enough. And we need to start raising those questions right now. And is this an opportunity to start creating federal and state jobs to, to meet the kind of needs that we need to have met while giving workers who are going to be laid off an opportunity to work in a different sector? So the idea of federal and state jobs being created seems to be in the, going in the exact opposite direction that this society and the economy uh, has gone through. Even the things that are long, for a long time, have been thought of as fundamentally government jobs, military operations, running a prison, fixing roads, building roads, things like that, uh, have been subcontracted out to the private sector. Do you think as a result of this crisis, that there's an opportunity now to come back and reshape the economy in a way that the government once again becomes some kind of center of jobs, providing some stability, providing some decent pay and benefits and uh, all those related things. Do you think there's an actual chance of it? Before this crisis, if someone would say that, I think as a, as a whole, they would be ignored or marginalized. Do you think that this crisis represents an opportunity to shift toward, to make this a legitimate demand, creating some government jobs? I think, Max, it will depend on the depth of the crisis. And there are so many things that are still hard to predict. And I do not wish, you know, a crisis of that depth on anyone in order to to shift policy because there's so much human suffering. But I do think the need 
for creating public jobs will intensify. And one can only hope that despite the ideological, you know, digging in of heels, that in a moment to sort of save the economy as a whole, at least, you might have some opportunity to shift the thinking on those concepts. We know very well, we've had from experience that bailing out the banks does not generate the jobs. The most effective, efficient, clear path to generating jobs is simply creating public jobs. So I think there's an opportunity to legitimize that conversation and hopefully an opportunity for some progress. But I think anyone would be foolish to predict anything at this moment because the economic impacts are still incredibly unclear. So one of the TV talking heads this past week, at least as of, as of this recording, this past week uh, predicted that at the end of this crisis, if it continues the way it looks like it's going to go, there could be three retail stores left in the United States, Walmart, Costco, and Amazon, and all the other ones would disappear. So at a time when a number of businesses are shuttering, it's pretty clear there's going to be a significant shedding, not only of jobs, but of, uh, of some of these big businesses. Uh, Costco, uh, is uh, their, their stock prices are going way up. Amazon is hiring 100,000 new workers, and Walmart is hiring 150,000 new workers. Uh, so is, the, is this idea that there could be a uh, uh, really a uh, consolidation of uh, retail uh, outlets into as little as three, maybe it'll be a few more than that, but a little as, as three. Is this something you think that is realistic? Is this something we should be worried about? Is this, uh, and what would the implications then be on workers if that does happen, something like that happens? We have seen consolidation and for years. This is certainly a moment of high risk for further consolidation, whether it's three or six or seven is less important than the fact that uh, small businesses are being wiped out, uh, that it's hard to imagine how some, some of them are ever going to come back uh, without serious federal help. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, is there a risk of further consolidation? It's very high, very high. Uh, and what does that say about the future of our democracy when so much power is concentrated into so few hands. It is not just an economic problem. It becomes a problem fundamentally of democracy. All right, let me point out something that may not be readily obvious. Uh, certainly partners for dignity and rights in particular, but the social justice movement in general in this country has on the healthcare side for years pushed the idea of universal healthcare where everyone access, has access to healthcare. And that, that seemed to be rejected by the society as a whole, certainly by the federal government uh, up until this point. And yet in response to this crisis, there are legitimate talks about having testing available to 100% of the people out there and having uh, treatment for the coronavirus, if not anything else, available to 100% of the people in the United States. There has been a big push for among the, in the social justice movement, and again, certainly with Partners for Dignity and Rights and some of your partner organizations, for everyone to have access to housing, people not getting evicted uh, from their place. And again, that's something that 
the society seems to not only have rejected, but is going in the opposite direction of making housing more and more expensive housing and making it more exclusive rather than more inclusive. Yet in response to this crisis, the state of California has just rented 900 uh, hotel rooms for otherwise homeless people. And many cities have announced that they are not going to do any evictions. And many cities and states are looking at uh, moratoriums on rent and or moratoriums on mortgages. In the workers' rights area, the social justice movement has for many years, and I think has formally probably given up on the idea of a guaranteed universal basic income in order to make sure that people can live their lives uh, regardless of where they are in terms of work and school and uh, being incapacitated or whatever the situation may be. And in response to this uh, moment, uh, to the coronavirus crisis, the federal government is now offering to send out checks of a minimal amount to be sure, but still offering to send out a check to every single worker out there. Is it possible, Kathy and Ben, that the good responses to this crisis also align perfectly with good public policy? I think some of them do. You know, some of them clearly do. The question becomes, and, and I think it is difficult to roll things back sometimes when you offer them to people, right? So there, there could potentially be some positive outcome, not, not that I think would outweigh the, the cost and human suffering and death that we're facing, but there could be some positive policy outcomes out of the emergency. But it's a mixed record, Max. $1,000 is not a universal basic income. There is no commitment to a sort of basic standard of living for people. That I have not seen. No, and the that, fact that's that, true. But I think that, and, and even giving people access to treatment for coronavirus is not the same as universal healthcare. But the point is that in response to the crisis, it seems like the system is putting out some shadow or some something that resembles what the social justice movement has been demanding all these years. In a, in a moment of crisis, social solidarity is the only response. And because the crisis touches everyone, it has created some of that solidarity. We can no longer segregate people into different tiers of society when it comes to a pandemic at this level. So all of a sudden you are seeing that social solidarity. And that could be a silver lining. And hopefully we will hold on to some of that silver lining. At the same time, the economic devastation, um, if it is not uh, if the response is not more social solidarity after we come out of the crisis, could further deepen the disparities that we are facing now. So I guess I would say this is a time to be vigilant, not to be passive, not to just hope but to act, because we are in a moment in time where it could go either way. And the, the difference could be us, everyone who steps in to push in one direction rather than another. Yeah, I agree. I think things could go in multiple directions, but I really appreciate um, all the examples you've cited, Max, because that does, does bring me hope. Um, I think that I've heard these sorts of moments called psychic ruptures, these periods where suddenly everybody's understanding of how the world works and what's possible cracks open and, and makes way for new possibilities. And I think in the past, when these moments arrive, I'm thinking, for example, of Hurricane Katrina or the Great Recession, we as social justice movements were not quite organized enough to take advantage. And um, a lot of people got hurt 
um, because of that. Um, whereas now I'm, I'm, I am more optimistic about just how many people have been politicized in recent years and how organized people are in terms of actually working together and having you know, a shared understanding and a shared vision and, and strategies that they're developing together. So I, I do agree with Kathy that things could go multiple directions and it's really, it's, it, the deciding factor will be what we all do in the coming months. And let's, let's not forget this is also an opportunity for authoritarianism. Trump's approval ratings are going up. They've announced a desire to suspend constitutional liberties. They are now um, deporting people with violating any semblance of due process. All this is happening at the same time as you see these positive steps. So it, it is an opportunity for more social solidarity and it is also an opportunity for authoritarianism. And the white nationalists and other authoritarian strands are very actively talking about this virus as an opportunity for them as well, which is why I say it is a moment not to be passive. As you're sitting at home, figure out from where you're sheltering in place, what we can do to come out of this stronger than we went in. Yeah, so let me just say, I, I, I think that this is a huge opportunity moment, potentially anyway, we haven't gone far enough down the road to see if it is, but if it is a opportunity moment for the left, it is also an opportunity moment for the right. And I'm, you know, just to be clear about the question, I'm not yet convinced that this is going to result in wholesale changes in any, any of these areas. I do think though, I'm a, to be completely honest, I'm, cr I'm a little bit crowing, saying, ha ha ha, we told you so all these years the, that universal healthcare is the way to go, and there wouldn't have to be all the song and dance if there was universal healthcare now. Universal housing was certainly the way to go, and there wouldn't be some mad dash to find people housing right now, uh, if everyone already had housing. And uh, the idea of a basic income uh, would certainly eliminate the need to, to pass something to send everyone a check and figure out how much it should be and all that other stuff that people uh, being forced off of work would not then ruin their lives, which is a real potential that can happen right now. So I'm not yet convinced that this is going to translate into major victories, although certainly the opportunity is there. Uh, but I do think this kind of justifies some of our positions if they work during this time. Then uh, maybe they could work during other times as well. And that is the narrative we need to walk out of this with. Had we had all these things in place, how much stronger would we be in weathering this particular storm? And this is not the only storm that's coming. Abs that is absolutely right, Max. And that is a narrative that we all need to be not necessarily crowing, because I'm not sure how it would land that. Oh, I'm crowing. Right? I'm crowing. But I think we do need to build a narrative that all these Bold ideas from progressive movements are exactly what will protect us in these times of crisis. Uh, and, and we need to hold on to that and keep pushing forward. So let's shift a little bit now and talk about the, the, the response to the coronavirus in schools. So uh, the Partnership for Dignity and Rights has a really powerful Dignity in Schools campaign with many, many partners. Now, because of the coronavirus crisis, schools across the country almost universally now, I think, have been shut down and young people are at home uh, for the next, uh, anywhere from two weeks to really the end of the school year. I think that's really, really possible uh, in many places. Uh, and a few places have announced, notably in Kentucky and a couple of other school districts uh, in other places, have announced that they may not engage in distance learning, in having students learn from home, taking online class or whatever, 
because of the technology gap, because of the fact that uh, low-income people, disproportionately uh, black and brown people, but low-income people do not necessarily have access to computers and the internet that would be required in order for them to get access to distance learning. So in this time of the crisis, and when we're talking about dignity in schools in a way other than police presence in schools, is this a good response? If, 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 one, if everyone can't have access to online learning, then no one should have access to it in order to avoid one group going faster than another, or is there another way? What should, how should, should we be thinking about this at this time? I mean, I think it's a very, very challenging moment for education, but it is without doubt distance learning would deepen disparities and not just because of technology. You know, not everybody's parents are home. <laughs> As we said, it's, it's some of the lowest wage workers that are out in droves keeping our society going. Uh, not everybody's parents speak English. Not everybody's parents have, you know, have had the education themselves to teach eighth, ninth, 10th grade math, you know, to their kids. Uh, and to and to ensure that they are moving along in the curriculum. Yeah, I'm not sure I can do 10th grade math anymore, to be honest. But the the reality is that whatever again, whatever fault lines we have are going to be further revealed. So if you already are in a in a neighborhood or in a household where parents don't have the time because they're working 60, 70 hours a week for the hands-on support to help their kids in school, or you have language barriers, or you have technology barriers, or you have overcrowding in homes where it's hard to focus, or you're taking care of multiple people who are ill or elderly, and you're dividing yourself up between kids who need to be schooled and people you're taking care of. All those things are gonna make this an even more uneven landscape than it was before. So it might be a radical solution to say, you know what? Let's take a pause. We'll start over. We'll catch up. And there might be other creative solutions. I don't have those answers, but I do have deep concerns that the distance learning, the homeschooling is going to layer on a whole nother set of disparities uh, on top of the ones we already have. Well, assuming that the teacher does the teaching as opposed to the parent, which is certainly happening in a lot of places now, uh, but the teacher's uh, uh, presumably need the work and want the work and want to continue to engage their students. Would universal access to computers, every child has a computer, not just every household, every child has a computer or a tablet, and universal access to the internet, to good, fast, stable internet connections. Would that resolve some of your questions about the, the equity access? It would resolve some of the questions. Then the, the other questions are, do they have decent, stable housing so they could learn at home? Mm. Do they have, you know, adequate supervision while they're home, which is education but beyond, right? Uh -huh. Because their parents have to work. And and I'm sure if that if we sort of dug deep and talked to people, right, who are living through this crisis, who are thinly resourced, they would be able to mention a number of other things. And that is my question: Are we talking to people? Are we asking them? Is what you need a computer, an internet, or do you need something else uh, in addition to that? Are we making these decisions in the abstract because we are projecting, or are we actually out there talking to parents struggling through this and saying, if we do distance learning, what do you need? Mm. And I think that is a methodology that we always fail to use. Mm. 
All right, well, Ben Palmquist and Kathy Alviza, both from Partners for Dignity and Rights, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Max. Thanks, Max. Okay, that's our show. Thank you for listening to The Next World. I'm Max Rameau. You can find out more about the work the Pan-African Community Action is doing at pacapower.org. That's P-A-C-A-Power.org. You can read more in depth on the many issues we talked about, like the human right to housing, universal health care, dignity in schools, and workers' rights on the Partners for Dignity and Rights website, dignityandrights.org. We'll be back with another episode of The Next World next month. Until then, please subscribe and tell your friends and post reviews wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye for now, and remember that the only way to liberation is to organize, organize, organize. Forward. Forward.